Hey, uh, my name is Nathan. I'm so glad that you guys are here. If you would, go ahead and get your copy of God's Word out. Uh, that We're going to be in John chapter 15 today. Uh, I love this chapter in God's Word, and I hope that all of you will too by the time we're over today, done today. Um, as you're uh, flipping there, I want to welcome those of you who are new in this space. Thank you for being here. There's a card in the seat back in front of you. We'd love for you to fill it out. We'll contact you in a respectful way. If you drop it in the give boxes to the right and to the left of the doors on your way out. Um, we've prayed for this time. We've prayed for you who are in this room. That always is, I can just trust the Lord that always the right crowd of people are in this space every week. That you guys, um, in this moment in time, God has things for us uh, in this room and in this gathering that he's appointed for us to hear and to hear from his word. And so I want us just to pray together as we read this passage. It is such a beautiful passage of scripture that I'm tempted to just read it and pray and say, go home, okay? It is just such a great passage. These are great words from our great Savior. And so let's prayerfully listen to them today and ask the Lord to help us to receive them, starting in verse 1 of chapter 15. These are Jesus. This is Jesus speaking. I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes, that it may bear more fruit. Already you are clean because of the word that I've spoken to you. Abide in me, and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine. Neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he's thrown away like a branch and withers, and the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire, and burned. If you abide in me, and my words abide in you. Ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. By this, my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Now I want to invite you to pray with me as I pray, asking God to speak to us today. Father, I pray that we would be the most joyful people because we've met with you today that this gathering in this moment would stir us up both in deep desire and deep resolve to abide in you, to have your life be the only source of our fruitfulness. Father, I pray that it would be so for the sake of your great name. Amen. Amen. One of the reasons I love this passage is because Jesus gives us his thesis statement at the close. He says, here's what I want. I want your joy to be full, okay? That's why I've spoken these things to you today. So I want to ask you the question before we begin, what's the path to true joy? What is the path towards true joy? 
What's it feel like when you feel full of God's joy? Maybe some of you, you're flooded with memories right now. Maybe some of you can imagine moments that you've had even this morning where you felt the joy of the Lord as you kind of sat at a table at Bellwether Breakfast this morning. Um, There's a few different ways that the world would answer this question. Before we dive into how Jesus answers this question, I want to just suggest that a lot of times the world is suggesting to us that you can be full of joy if you have the things that you want, okay? And you avoid the things that you don't. That's the path of joy, just happiness. That you can avoid things that you don't want and get the things that you want. Other people would suggest, and I think that this is actually a, a, a true suggestion, that sometimes joy can be temporarily had when we have ignorance. Uh, in other words, we just don't know what's happening. Like the people on the Titanic, like they're partying. They don't understand what's about to happen to them. But everybody who's watching the movie, the Titanic, you know that ship's about to sink and all of their joy is about to be over, right? Uh, <laughs> C.S. Lewis described that kind of joy, that half-hearted, ignorant joy like this. Our Lord finds us our desires not too strong, but too weak. We're half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered to us. How? What is it like? Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in the slum because he cannot imagine what's meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We're far too easily pleased. That's what ignorance looks like. You don't know what's being offered to you. Some people think that joy is the pursuit of happiness. Some people think that what they already have is joy. When there's something infinite being offered to us. And what Jesus describes in this passage is a kind of joy that depends on him being the central figure of it. That's dependent on his person. Joy that's, that's uh, not based in our own power, but based in someone else's power. Listen, your pleasures are within your power a lot of days, okay? You can pursue pleasure, but the kind of joy that Jesus is is describing in this passage can only be found through a relationship with him. And he gives us this. I want to describe for you what I believe he's describing in this fullness of joy. It's a joy that's different, and it's an ability to experience the kind of happiness that God has in heaven when he looks over all creation. There's moments when we are abiding in him, when we get to share in his deep happiness and pleasure as he looks at creation. And he puts that into our hearts. And we get to both receive it and it fills up our joy. It's an internal sense of peace that can only be produced by the Spirit working Jesus' presence out in your life. It's the process of him bringing all of the glory of himself into the daily joys of your life. Now, I want to give you a couple of things that are in context as Jesus begins to describe this. He's just said that he's going to leave his disciples. They're going to have another helper come, and it's going to be better than when he was physically present with them. It's going to be great, and they're going to experience things. And he's saying at the close of this passage where he describes these things, he says, these things, it's going to be on the screen, I've spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. And so before we launch into this passage, I want to ask you, How's the joy meter going in your life? Like, where's it at right now? Is the tank on empty? You running about halfway? Are you full blast? You just feel like you're ready to take on a road trip with Jesus, okay? 
How is it going right now? Because Jesus is speaking these things specifically to his disciples to answer this question. How can my joy be made full in your life? He's aiming at their joy. And he gives a few things, okay? And I want to kind of conclude with this. The whole picture of this story is going to be on the screen. Abiding in Christ leads to spiritually fruitful, joy-filled life. And he gives three things that we're going to walk through in this passage. First, a picture of a vineyard. Then he's going to give a petition for them to abide in him. And then he gives them this promise of fruitfulness, of God being glorified, of their life being full of joy. So that's where we're going. And I want to first start with this picture of a vineyard. He starts by describing. Now, people aren't confused. When they're looking at Jesus and he says, I'm the true vine, they're not thinking that he looks like a vine. So immediately, they know that he's speaking in allegory. He's not looking like a vine. But the first character, as Jesus paints this picture of a vineyard, is himself. He says, I am the true vine. Now, this is the seventh and final I am sayings of Jesus. All throughout John's gospel and throughout the gospel, he's giving these statements, I am the bread of life. I'm the resurrection and the life. This is the final one. And he's saying, I am the true vine. Okay. So first he's saying, I'm the true one. That means that he's the real one. There's potential other false ones that you could plug your branch into. And he's saying, there could be other places, but I'm the true one. True in comparison to everything else that would be false. He's the one that's authentic, that can deliver on the power that you're going to need in order to have a fruitful, joyful life. He is the only one who's self-sufficient. It's not going to take away from you, but going to put life into you. Listen, there's lots of places that you could plug your life. And Jesus today is still saying this. I'm the true vine. I'm the one. Second character that he paints in this picture of a vineyard. There's a vine dresser, the father. The Father, God the Father in the Trinity. He's saying he's present too. He's overseeing this whole place. Now, there's a lot of ways in which we sometimes forget that God the Father is a present part of our daily lives in our spiritual life. And Jesus is painting a picture where God the Father is still playing this important role in what's going on. Your entire Christian life is being overseen by one who owns the vineyard. He takes care of it. He's doing things. He has responsibility. He's pruning you so that you can stimulate growth. He's cutting away dead branches. And in all of these places, there's no place that you're going to go spiritually where God the Father isn't present with you. He's the vine dresser. We don't move on from the Father to the Son and then on to the Spirit. Jesus, in fact, said we should pray to the Father. Pray to Him. He's overseeing every aspect of your spiritual life. Third character, these non-fruitful branches. He says, every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. This is describing those people that might profess belief, but they don't possess the life of Christ. They don't have it. Now, there's always going to be pictures of this. In every gathering in the name of Jesus, there's going to be people who are authentic and those that are posers. And this should at least bring us some evaluation. The other thing I want you to know is that as he describes this, the, the noise of somebody betraying Jesus is still ringing in their ear. You need to imagine that all of these people have just sat with Judas, okay? They just sat with him. And right before in chapter 13, when he washes their feet, do you remember what he says to Peter? He says, look, I'm washing so that you may be clean, but what? Not all of you are clean, okay? It's really important 
Because here in this passage, he says, every one of you are clean. There's only one of them that's missing. Okay? He's saying all of you are clean now. So there's one branch that's already been taken away. And he's describing this non-fruitful branch. Now, this still applies that there would be people who profess who don't possess Christ. This is true. We should see it as an evaluation. It's connected to verse 6. Anyone who does not abide in me, he's thrown away like a branch and withers, and the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire, and burned. That's the non-fruitful branch. Now, wait a minute. Does this mean that I'm not, if I'm not doing something for God, that he's going to cut the slack and throw me into the fire? I don't want to dismiss the fact that this should cause us some evaluation. I don't want to dismiss that. But I want you to know that if you're asking that question... <laughs> chances are you're wanting to be a fruitful life on the vine. I want to remind you that Jesus is speaking to the disciples who would all later become apostles, planting churches, healing people in his name, teaching the gospel, proclaiming the same gospel that Jesus come to bring about, the gospel of the kingdom of heaven. This can't be un understood unless we see in verse 3 that he's saying to them, like I've already said, you guys are clean, Okay. So he's describing branches that would be cut away, and he's not talking to his disciples. He's talking about those that are already cut away. I think he's referring to Judas in this place. So what do we make of this unfruitful branch? I think he's talking about Judas. I think he's talking about anyone who would profess Jesus but don't actually abide in him. They don't receive the life that's come from him. Now, that's not to say that we shouldn't receive these words in an, as an evaluation. We should be somewhat wondering, am I a faithful branch that's connected to this true vine? Is that me? And that's the, the fourth character in this picture that he paints of a vineyard. The branches that are fruitful. There's another kind of branch. It's the kind of branch that bears fruit because it's connected to Jesus, the vine. And what does he say? Hey, there's moments where the vine dresser, God the Father, is going to prune them back so that they might even feel like they're being less productive so that they might in the future be more productive. The pruning happens of faithful people. Look, there's lots of people who feel like they've been pruned or maybe they feel like God has been cruel or unkind. It'll feel like your capacity has been limited and, and it could mean that God's preparing an even greater harvest that would come from your life. That could be what's happening. Pruning is always going to happen for the people that are fruitful so that they can be more fruitful. He's letting you know throughout all of this, this is an allegory, and so this has meaning, okay? Nobody's confused that Jesus doesn't look like a vine, and so all of these pictures, the vine, the vine dresser, the unfruitful, the fruitful branch, all four of these characters have meaning, and all of us would do well to just receive all of the words that Jesus spoke about it, believing that they still have meaning for us today. Not many people have a vineyard in their backyard. The best we have is maybe a trip to California. Maybe you've seen it, okay? You've seen something hanging from a vine before. Your mama grew some groceries or something. And so this can feel really distant for us. Um, and I want us just to do as well as we can to imagine a gregarian culture where they saw things growing all the time. They saw these things and they didn't come from Sam's, Costco, or Kroger. And they knew what it meant for a vine to produce fruit in a branch. Now, maybe you've got some crepe myrtles that you broke, broke off at some point in your yard, and that's the closest thing you've got to pruning. And you know that eventually there's no life in them. 
And Jesus is making a petition in this next part of this passage for us to be like those fruitful branches, to pay attention to, to acknowledge his presence, and to abide in him. Look at verse 4. Abide in me, and I in you. Now, he's just explained that he's leaving. Physical presence, about to be gone. And he's telling this group of people, you need to live with me. Stay close to me. The sound of him saying, I'm going someplace where you cannot come with me, is ringing in their ears, okay? So he can't be describing them following him along on the path the way that they have been doing for the last three years. This is hours before his arrest, hours before he's beaten and crucified. And they know, he's explained it to them, that he's not going to be physically present. And yet, he describes what they're to do. He petitions them so that they would abide with him and in him and him in them. So what does that look like? Well, it's exactly like a branch that's completely dependent on the vine to have life. The vine uses the branches to produce the fruit. Now, we'll get to the fruits in just a moment, but we acknowledge here that it's absolutely essential if you want to have spiritual life that you're connected to the source of spiritual life. And this is a mystery of all mysteries. In fact, Paul describes it as a mystery. The fact that we would somehow be uh, one with Christ is a mystery, okay? And here's the problem about mysteries. If we succeed in explaining them, then we failed. And if we fail, then we've succeeded, Okay? I'm going to say that again slow. If we describe a mystery in a way where we, dis- we succeed, then we've failed in describing the mystery. But if we fail, then we've succeeded. And so I want to faithfully fail in describing to you something that's absolutely profoundly important for all of you who want to have the life of Jesus in you. And I want to fail in doing so, so that you will walk away with more reverence and awe and wonder and questions saying, Lord, more of that in my life. In fact, Paul describes it in this way in Colossians chapter 1. He says, the mystery that's been hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints, to him God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery. What's the mystery? It's Christ in you. The hope of glory. Here's the mystery that Paul has described. Here's the mystery that Jesus is describing in this passage. There is another most significant life that has to come for everyone who believes. And the only way that you're going to be fruitful in this life, the only way that you're going to have joy in this life is if there's some other life that comes and lives in you. And it's reciprocal, okay? You also abide in him. He lives in you. You live in him. Now, the closest thing that we have to this is the electricity going out, right? You know what it's like for your electricity to go out. We had this happen this past week. A storm blew through. And, you know, I pull up the map on the energy and you're saying, okay, which neighborhoods are out? When's it going to get to us? The time delay. And and several years ago, I worked at a ranch where we had like 200 kids all at once or 300 kids. And we decided that we were too far out to depend on the power grid. So we, we bought a diesel generator and once a month you had to crank it up. Why did we do that? So that we wouldn't be without power. It's really hard to feed 200 mouths without electricity, okay? It can be done, but it's very hard. We did this so that we could stay connected to the power. And Jesus describes some ways in this passage 
that we might stay connected to the power of his life in us. First thing he describes is that we would stay connected through his word. No, we, I'm sorry, through abiding in his presence. Now, just the general idea that we would be present with someone who's invisible is hard to understand, okay? It's really hard to understand, but the only way that we're going to have his life flowing through us is for us to be in regular practicing of his presence, that we would acknowledge that he's always around us. We're not going to ignore him. We're praying to him, believing that he's present with us. C.S. Lewis describes it this way. Now, this is a long quote, so just bear with me. Uh, Good things, as well as bad, you know, are caught by a kind of infection. If you want to get warm, you got to stand near the fire. If you want to be wet, you got to get into the water. If you want joy, power, peace, eternal life, you must get close to or even into the thing that has them. They're not sort of prizes which God could, if he chose, just hand out to anyone. There's a great fountain of energy and beauty spurting up at the very center of reality. If you're close to it, the spray will, get, will wet you. If you're not, you'll remain dry. Once a man is united to God, how could he not live forever? Once a man is separated from God, what can he do but wither and die? Now, the whole offer which Christianity makes is this, that we can, if we let God have his way, come to share in the life of Christ. If we do, we shall then be sharing a life which was begotten, not made, which always has existed and always will. He's saying in this passage, I want you to come near me. And just to see as Lewis described, if you want to get wet, you got to get in the water. If you want to get warm, you got to get near the fire. We have to practice the reality of God's presence on a daily basis. Just acknowledging that he's with us and among us, believing that it's true and letting the fruits of that belief impact our present tense. Second thing about abiding in him. So first his presence. The second thing is verse seven. If you abide in me and what? My words abide in you. Ask whatever you wish and it will be done. The second thing that he's describing for us to abide in him is that we let his words, the truth of what he said about who he is in the scriptures, what he declared as he walked this earth, abide in us. His commandments permeating our life. Listen, how do you know that God loves you? There's lots of evidence around you that might point to the opposite of that truth. But the evidence of God's word is that he does. This means that we regularly take in God's word. Just take it in. I love this book. uh, It's called The Common Rule. It's a book about habits. And one of this guy, he's a lawyer in D.C., and he describes different spiritual habits that have been helpful to him. And one of them is this, that he has scripture before screens every day. I think it's really practical. Just before you open up a screen, open up God's word and let some of it permeate you. Do you have a regular intake of God's truth, his words over you? Listen, podcasts are great. I love a podcast. They're convenient. They're helpful, right? But they're kind of like vending machines. Look, if you built your whole diet around what you could buy at a vending machine, Everyone around you is going to hope that they're not on the same insurance plan as you, you know? Do you have regular input of God's word where you're just taking it in? You can listen to great music that's about God's word. You can listen to things. Just read God's word aloud. 
bleed scripture. Uh, Charles Spurgeon, he was talking about this concept of bleeding scripture when he described Paul Bunyan. Right before this, he said, oh, that you and I might get into the very heart of the word of God and get that word into ourselves as I've seen the silkworm eat into the leaf and consume it. So ought we to do with the word of the Lord, not crawl over its surface, but eat right into it until we've taken it into our inmost parts. It's idle to merely let the eye glance over the words or to recollect the poetical expressions or the historic facts. But it's blessed to eat into the very soul of the Bible until at last you come to talk in spiritual language. And your very style is fashioned upon Scripture models. And what is better still, your spirit is flavored with the words of the Lord. Then he goes on to describe Paul Bunyan. Paul Bunyan's who wrote Pilgrim's Progress. And he, he says, why, this man is a living Bible. You prick him anywhere, and his, but, his blood is biblene. The very essence of him, the Bible flows from him. He cannot speak without quoting a text. For this very soul is full of the word of God. I commend his example to you, beloved. I love that example that that there would be so much of God's truth in us that if you pricked us, it kind of bled out of us. If there was moments and circumstances where we're in conversation and we don't know what to say, we at least know what God has said. So that's the second part, that we would abide in his word, would be in his presence, we'd abide in his word. And then third, he says in verse nine, as the father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. Abide in this reality that God has set his affections on his children. He looks at us with this great commendation that's been bought with us by the precious blood of Jesus. And he looks at us as his precious child. He's already demonstrated. Look, if you wonder, well, how can I know if God really loves me? Listen, your questions are welcome here. And what we're going to declare over you again and again is the gospel of Jesus Christ because God has ultimately demonstrated his love in that while we were still rebellious enemies of his, he adopted us as his children. He set his affections on us while we were still resistant towards him. He called us, made us his own. And over and over and over again, he declares his love over us in his pursuit. And Jesus' invitation to us is that we would set up our house in that place. Set up our dwelling place there. Live in that place. Live there where his affections are declared more loudly than all the other questions that you hold in your heart. It's the place that we live. uh, As I was thinking about this, this week, I thought about Psalm 131. We have so many babies around. You know, I love seeing all the babies in our church. And you can tell when they're hungry or when they're not, right? They're either going to be grumpy or just completely satisfied. And I love this picture in Psalm 131. I've calmed and quieted my soul like a weaned child with its mother, like a weaned child is my soul within me. This is a a picture that God has painted for those who would take their refuge in him and abide in him, completely satisfied, not longing for anything, completely full, And then he lays out a fourth way for us to abide, and it's obedience. He's saying, just as I have done it, 
He lived his life in this yielded way. Look at 1510. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I've kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. Now, he's laying out this way for us to stay in this place of God's love. That doesn't mean that disobedience will remove us from God's love. God's love doesn't change, whether we're obeying or not. But there's a way that you cannot be receiving that kind of love because of how you're acting. There's a way that you can turn away from it. There's nothing you could do for God to love you more. There's nothing you could do to make him love you less. But there's lots of things that you could do to keep yourself from paying attention to that fact. Lots of things. Look, I don't love my kids any less when they disobey, hopefully, you know. I'm not a perfect dad. Hopefully, I'm a faithful dad. But there's lots of things my kids can do that would keep them from experiencing my affection for them. It could keep them from experiencing it. Doesn't mean that you're working for his love or working to even convince yourself that he loves you. It just means that if you will abide in his commandments, there's nothing that's going to restrict your attention from what he's done from you, for you. You're going to experience and live and abide in his love in a different way depending on how you yield to his commands on your life. That's just true. You're going to experience his love differently. And Jesus said, the model that I've laid out is I surrendered, I yielded, I prayed not my will but yours be done, Father. And he invites us to follow in that path so that we can experience on a day-to-day basis the fullness of his love. So four things, abide in me, live in his presence. Second thing, let my words abide in you, abide in my love, and then keep my commandments. And he gives some promises in this passage. If these things are true, if you're abiding in me, this is what you can expect in your life. He gives this promise of fruitfulness. He begins by explaining that anyone who does not abide in him is not going to bear fruit. In fact, you can't do anything. Verse four, the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine. Verse five, apart from me, you can do nothing. I've often wondered, and this is just about myself, okay? Personally, how much more would God accomplish through myself through his church, if we actually believed that to be true. If we just thought that there was nothing good we could accomplish apart from him, how much more could he accomplish? Because so much of our own striving, our own efforts, our own desire for fruitfulness and purpose is apart from his power. It it definitely would slow us down, right? It would definitely make us effective if we just assumed that there was absolutely nothing we could do apart from God's power that would be worthwhile. There's a few ways that he describes this kind of fruitfulness. First in verse 7, he says, if you, if you pray, you can ask whatever you will, and it's going to be done for you. In other words, one of the effects of abiding is a kind of fruitfulness in prayer. You not only know what to pray, you begin to pray in alignment with what God's will is, and God begins to do things that you could not have done yourself. Would we know, uh, we would not only know how to pray, we would know what to pray, and our concerns would begin to resemble God's heart for the world. And he begins to pour out his power through prayer. You ask whatever you wish, and I'm going to bring it about if you abide. Second fruit from this is not just that our prayers would be answered, but that God would be glorified. Look at it. (laughs) He looks great in the lives of his people. 
You're going to prove to be my disciples because every time you pour out these kind of fruits, people are going to say, hey, God is amazing. God the Father is glorified in it. That's the second piece. And we should all want that. We want for our lives to resemble his kingdom. And then it's going to provide proof, a demonstration of our authenticity because the ways of our life uh, is just bearing fruit. It resembles God. It resembles obedience. It resembles his righteousness. Not by our own power, but because his power is working through us. So, I really am wrapping up. In conclusion, Jesus says, these things I've spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. So in order for us to evaluate this message or even to see how we're receiving it, we have to ask ourselves the question, is my joy full? Do I feel like I'm brimming? When someone bumps into me, is it joyful things that spill out of the cup? The answer to that question is closely related to where you do your living. Because Jesus' command is to abide. That means make your home in me. So I want to leave you with this question. Where do you live? Where do you live? Look, I bet most of you could tell me about the last experience you had staying in a hotel. You could describe it to some degree. Right? You could say, this is what it looked like. This is where it's at. You might could even drive back to the location, but I guarantee you probably don't know the address. You don't know where that place is. Or if you stayed in an Airbnb or a VRBO, you might have a little bit more description, but you still don't know the address. You don't know that place. Recently, when I was having all this work done on my back, I could not believe the number of trees that had to die for me to fill out that much paperwork, okay? It's just paper upon paper, and they all want to know, where do you live, where do you live, where do you live? And I always would write it. Here's one thing I remembered. I can still remember the address to my childhood home. I'm sure many of you can too. You remember what it was like. You know what it smelled like. You know what it felt like. You probably can't describe a lot of places that you've been, but you could tell me the layout of your childhood home. I'm just guessing, okay? I know I could. I can remember uh, the way that my window latched. I can remember the latch on my window from my childhood home because just as it was getting to be warm enough, we would raise the windows, and there's a little pond behind our house, and I could hear the frogs croaking at night. I could hear the crickets singing just a cool breeze coming in. I can remember that place because I lived there. And that place got into me in a different way. It was home for me. My parents made their home there and I made my home there. And that place has made its home in me. And in the same way, I want to ask the question to you today, where do you live Where's the place that feels so familiar to you that it's not only permeated your memory, but you can remember it just to a T? And Jesus' invitation to us is to abide in him, to make our home with him, 
to live with him in such a way that he would, we would not just live in him and with him, he would begin to make his home in us. We'd become so familiar with his power that it becomes part of how we live our life. It begins to produce the fruits of knowing him. It's a wonderful invitation to hear Christ petitioning today to live with him. To let his words dwell in us richly. To abide in his love. To let his affections be the final answer for who we are. It really makes all the difference in the world. And Jesus is offering for us to be beacons of his light and his life so that we could demonstrate what we read at the beginning, that in his presence is fullness of joy. That's why he said these things, so that there would never be a moment where your joy is lacking. Now, there could be moments when your happiness feels like a disaster, okay? There could be moments where you feel like an earthen treasure that feels like persecuted and estranged in so many ways, but always that this would be true, that he would make his home in us and in his presence, Psalm 16.1, that there would be fullness of joy, 16.11. At his right hands are pleasures forevermore. And almost all of the Christian life comes down to this. Are you willing to pay attention to him, to let his words dwell in you, to walk with him in prayer? Success or failure in so many ways in the Christian life comes down to prayer and scripture. It's really simple. That's how you make your home there. We're just branches. He's the vine. The Father's the vine dresser. And no matter what happens to us, Jesus wants to be with us so that we might have joy. There's another place where it's described because I know there's probably people in this room that are like, my joy is really low right now. It's really, really low. And ultimately, he wants to manifest his power through us and to us. And he describes it in 2 Corinthians like this. We have this treasure in jars of clay to show the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. We're afflicted in every way. Not crushed. <laughs> Perplexed. Not driven to despair. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Struck down, not destroyed. Why? Because always we're carrying the body of the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may be manifested in our bodies. For we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake. Why? So that the life of Jesus may also be made manifest in our mortal flesh. In other words, even when all of the circumstances are awful, and everything that we would potentially avoid has not been avoided. And everything we could potentially pursue has not been attained. And in all of those places, he's saying, I want you to live in me so that I can live in you. So that my life, my resurrection life can be made manifest in your bodies. And so I want to ask you as we close today, uh, <laughs> I don't normally do this, but I'm just going to do, do it. If you're feeling quite empty, I just want you to raise your hand. We're going to pray a prayer over you. If you're feeling like my joy is at the lowest that it could possibly be, we're going to pray a prayer over you. Just raise your hand. Okay. Everybody see some hands around you. Thank you. Now, everybody, I want us to pray this prayer over the people that raised your hand. Now, if you didn't raise your hand, we'll pray it over you too. Okay. 
Let's read this passage of scripture over everyone that raised their hand. This is our prayer for us who believe and for everyone who's wondering, am I pruned or am I dead branch? Let's pray it out loud over them. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing so that by the power of the Holy Spirit, you may abound in hope. Just receive those words. Receive that prayer. We pray that you would be filled with joy so that you would abound in hope. It's Jesus' hope for us that our joy would be full to the brim. Father, I thank you for your word today. And I pray for those that were just desperately hoping that you could fill up their cup a little bit with joy, that your Holy Spirit would just pour out an extra measure of your joy in their life today. For those that weren't courageous enough to raise their hand, I know you're with them too. They know who they are. Father, you do too, and I pray that you'd fill them up with a measure of hope and joy. Pray that this prayer from Romans would be true of us, that we would be filled. Your joy would just permeate our lives, that we would abide in this place and walk with you. Pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.